Welcome to our backyard. This is the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We are two friends having a discussion after everyone else has passed out or gone to bed. Grab a drink and listen as we discuss everything from automation, space exploration, and why the meaning of life is 42. Mike, and I know the answer to this, but have you ever licked a 9-volt battery? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Today we're going to talk about batteries, where they came from, why they're important, what we use them for, and where they're going. Before we get into that, Mike, first, how did you enjoy your 9-volt lick, and what are you drinking? I have a modern energy management, so I absolutely love batteries, and I have a glass full of Maker's Mark, so it's going to be a good day. What about you, my friend? How are you doing? What are you drinking? I got some high west american prairie bourbon and i am ready to talk about batteries and even though it's a departure from things i like to talk about much (laughs) less (laughs) probably some could argue more important topic for our current world today well trees are just batteries for oxygen right technically yes i guess I, i mean no but not completely no (laughs) maybe i lick too many nine volt batteries you're not you're not wrong enough for me to try and explain to you why you're wrong how's that (laughs) oh (laughs) fair enough fair enough but uh batteries i guess they've been around i was surprised on how long they've been around they have been around for quite a minute there nick yeah so i'm curious to see what you came up with but the first quote-unquote battery that i saw recorded was from 200 bc known as the baghdad battery did you get any earlier than that i have the same battery but i could be that i just wrote it down wrong but i have it being a thousand years old a thousand bc it could be different iterations people different messing around uh but definitely the baghdad battery definitely before uh christ so at least we're somewhat on the same page close enough i mean Carbon dating, 200 to 1,000 years, that's not bad. <laughs> oh, I think it should be off. important to note, the batteries we're talking about are not mechanical batteries, but electrical batteries, so chemistry-based. Uh, mechanical batteries such as air, weight, they've been around, and water, they've been around for centuries, if not eons before that. We're talking about like a chemistry battery. It's like one, if you licked it, it would give you a little shock. Yeah, it's not going to power car or anything but uh the quote-unquote baghdad battery one of the earliest known examples of a battery is basically a jar filled with vinegar with two metal poles in it some a copper tube and an iron rod and when they're connected that they would you'd feel a little i guess i don't know not to not enough to like shock you like a taser but you could feel some sort of charge probably pretty similar to licking a nine volt battery if i had to guess <laughs> well actually uh mythbusters from those who remember the mythbusters back in the day did an episode on the baghdad battery and their hypothesis was that it was to be a religious thing of to feel god in you and you'd touch stuff and you'd feel electrical volt for you um, not sure if it's enough voltage to feel through the skin but yeah probably if you lick it it would uh well, you definitely know you licked something you probably shouldn't have licked. Man, that's a, that's a Guinness Book of World Records we're not going to get back. The first man to lick a battery. Oh. And I say that because we know it was a man. 
<laughs> Probably drinking some uh, homemade beer or uh, some very yeasty bread going, guys, guys, hold my toga. Yeah, that's 100% what happened. But Hilarious was the same guy who, I mean, we had alcohol way before that. So that's not even not even a, a, a great statement. But how hilarious would it be if it was the same slob who left his yeast in the in the jar <laughs> and his his vinegar with his two rods in it it's like oh shit this whole yeast is pretty good and this thing makes me tingly <laughs> it makes me feel good oh, that guy had a mullet you know it <laughs> but fast forwarding a little bit uh coming to uh, this might be a little bit too far ahead but the 1700s nick don't know if you have anything in between that uh no we're going to the uh, the old BF. Yes, Frank. One of our good friends. Longtime listener. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin. Um, for those wondering about the whole lightning and key thing, it didn't exactly happen. It has been romanticized over the ages, but he did mess around with electricity for a little bit. In fact, a lot of people were, I mean, we're just coming out of the Enlightenment age in Europe, so it was traveling amongst, and the Merchants and middle class in America, since like the Juno Club, were investigating electronics. By electronics, I mean ways to store energy. Um, at first, they were used as mere carnival and parlor tricks, but people start actual thinking and doing math upon it. Uh, a big one, which will be a little bit late in the 1700s and into the 1800s, was Michael Faraday. Some of you might be familiar with Michael Faraday because, well, without him, we would not have discovered magnetism pretty much that magnetism and a current can make a magnet spin or moving a magnet can cause a current which is kind of important for electricity yeah and it, this is just when we think of batteries we think of how like they like they came out of nowhere and we just started using these things in our tv remotes and all this shit and it's like i hope we're past two minutes and uh but no we've had batteries we're known about electricity and kind of been able to store them because he had uh, jars, jars that stored a charge from the conductors in glass jars with uh, like a metal foil around around the outside. And he's able to use that to, for his experiments. It's like we've literally been storing power, well, I guess technically since before Christ. But, I mean, Benjamin Franklin, the founding father of our country, one of the founding – is, is he considered a founding father? Yeah, he's a founding I father. So. Okay, he just decided not to be president. But uh, they've been storing energy for a long time. I don't know. For me, bef before I really got into it, batteries are something I never really thought about and much less thought we had that long ago. Yes, to me, batteries were how cell phones were for the 21st century, but batteries were... Honestly, I did no research. But, I mean, I researched this. Before I had no understanding of it, I was like, uh, it's probably Tesla invented batteries, if I had to guess. <laughs> Few centuries off there, my friend. Educated? That's not true. That was the guess. <laughs> but since we're still in the 1800s, just a quick point, because we'll probably be talking about it a lot. Lithium is when the first time lithium comes to the scene is in the 19th century. In 1817, lithium was first discovered by Offwardson and... Berzelius, I'm guessing German or Austrian. Just uh, well, actually, the time Germany didn't exist, so Prussian and Austrian. Just an educated guess. And uh, well, it wouldn't be till 
the late 1800s and early 20th century where batteries were starting to become useful, not just a experimentation done in laboratories or by inventors and scientists. What were they using the lithium for? They just like find it and were like, check this out, check this shit out. Uh, well, based on, oh God, what's his name? Starts with an M, the guy who helped develop the periodic table. Uh, based on his setup of the periodic table, we knew there were, we were missing elements that we have yet to discover. And lithium is only found in a few spots on the earth. And, well, it's, that's not true. Lithium in high quantities is only found in a few places on the earth. It's also kind of hard to, to distinguish. It's not a metal that is separate. Is it an alkaline rare earth metal, right? Uh, it's not a sure. d- distinguished metals. Like copper, copper ore is just found in abundance because it's all stiff together. Uh, certain metals are kind of murky. They're mixed in with a lot and take a lot of refinery, so they're harder to find. So we were kind of looking forward to fill out the periodic table, and we came across a new element, lithium, which I can't imagine how cool it would be to discover a new type of molecule. Sorry, not molecule, atom. Yeah, there's only so many of those. They don't they don't make them anymore. Uh, yeah, we do. Do they? Well, I mean, they make like a few. You're not rich enough to make them. <laughs> that is very true. But it wouldn't be until the late 1800s and the 20th century where batteries were starting to be more common. In fact, the electric- Well, uh so I'm going to 1836 where you headed. Oh, no. Please continue, my friend. Okay, in 1836, John, and I, he's English, so we have to talk, you have to use middle names. John Frederick Daniel, he created <laughs> the English in their names. He created the Daniel cell, <laughs> which was a, a large battery, is basically a copper pot filled with copper sulfate inside some kind of container with sulfuric acid and a zinc electrode. And he was using that and he made that and people who were putting out like uh telegraph poles would use that as a the telegraph power for like a side that wasn't receiving power so that they could send communications so essentially you could argue that the first i don't know self-powered text message was sent when they implemented that i think it was like in the 1840s uh so he was kind of the predecessor for setting up the telegram yeah if they didn't have another source of electricity, they would use these these batteries. That's, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so that was one of the first, uh, I don't know, real, like, real world, like, actual use examples, not just scientific An research battery. batteries. Yes. Yes, and from there, it only grew. I mean, electric car became, was first developed in the late 1800s, and slowly through, well, stealing, Thomas Edison would, would bring electricity kind of everywhere by showing off it with a light bulb. But a lot of people were developing different ways to uh, show off their electricity. Direct current, alternated current, and different ways to store that. Different types of batteries. Started getting into cars. Cars needed headlights. We didn't want to use oil lamps in front of cars anymore. Well... Electricity seems to solve that answer. And it's from there, it just absolutely grew. Oh, yeah. And we've been using... Uh, let's... Uh, I'd say the... I don't know. Would you say founder of the modern-ish battery-ish was John Goodenough? I don't know if you came across him. I did not come across him. Okay. So 
pretty much uh he worked for like a battery company and he did a lot of work um well i guess he's pretty he's pretty later but he worked a lot in batteries and he is a professor at university of texas because we have to mention texas oh don't worry podcast i'll bring up texas quite a bit in this episode okay so he was one of the guys who's um, wanted he started promoting electric vehicles in our current age in in 86 he was promoting electric vehicles which is mind-boggling pretty pretty yeah like that's not uh i guess that's kind of the beginning of the green movement but it's not mainstream at that time um and he had other you know studies and stuff but after his university worked he kind of i don't know if you'd say went into government but he kind of was always on the outside of government, I guess, of being involved in in large companies and legislation. Like he worked with uh, the Argonne Laboratory and the Department of Energy, and he's been pushing like electric vehicles uh, through those positions. That is really close to home, because and you'll like this too, Mike. One of his favorite things besides batteries is magnets. Oh, Nick, I could kiss you. Anytime we can bring back it to magnets, I'm a very happy camper. Uh, just don't just keep recording, but all my stuff is from the 1950s up. I don't know if there's anything in between there. And- oh, no, nothing. Too, I don't really have too much, so we, you can get rid of it. Uh, he's, I think, is more of a policy guy as much, so we can... It doesn't flow too good. We can use that. For some reason, I was thinking he was older, but keep going. But again, anytime we have magnets, I'm very happy. But it'd be a little bit later until lithium pops back up. Of course, they were doing experimentations with it, but it wasn't until the 1950s and 60s where scientists, researchers were starting to get real serious about trying to better lithium. And by the 1970s, they finally had a usable, rechargeable battery. But... It didn't take the world by storm. We were still stuck with the lead-acid battery systems that are in your cars, not the lithium-ion batteries that we have in our cell phones. It wouldn't be until the 1990s, specifically 1991, when Sony first released a lithium battery. They produced a battery for their devices simply because Sony couldn't find any battery company that would produce lithium-ion batteries, so they decided to do it themselves, which is... One, kind of awesome that they had. They decided just to do it themselves. And two, they simply do it to make their products better. So good old capitalism leading the way. But we keep talking about batteries. And Nick- so, Mike, do you know what happened in the 1980s before Sony invented that battery? Uh, I know they were going around looking for someone to produce that battery, but couldn't find anybody. But besides that, nothing else. In 1980... Uh, John B. Goodenough found that using lithium-10 CO carbon carbon oxide-1 oxygen-2, they were able to double the capacity of lithium-ion batteries. Ooh. I hope I said that right. L-I-X-C, big C, little O, big O-2. Wait, did you say X? Yeah. What's it? X is 10, isn't it? Well, isn't X also an element? Like, isn't that a abbreviation? No, no. Big L, little I, sub, oh, sub X. Oh, gotcha. Subscript. Subscript X. Okay. Uh, oh, 
Interesting. So adding some alloys to make it more efficient. But I'm out of, just out of curiosity, especially after that chemistry demonstration by you, Nick. How do basic batteries work? <laughs> well, Mike, uh, first off, batteries work through magic. Uh huh. Very okay. similar to pulling Harry a sword Potter. out of stone. <laughs> yes, uh, and that's how you decide who is king. I'm I'm pretty sure. So you have two metals on either side, and then you have some sort of chemical solution, and then depending on the kind of battery, some kind of separator, and the chemical solution holds and generates electricity depending on which it is, and then goes out one and in the other. And the way they, the metals and the solution interact depends on which battery is different. But you have the positive terminal is a cathode and the negative is the anode and so each of those like you're like if you know from charging a, or you know jumping a car the that positive terminal where you connect your the red ones go to the positive that's your cathode and then your unmarked terminal is your negative that's your anode and then in between those two and this is kind of where i got tripped up because like, i feel like it depends like lithium lithium they have the paper solution that separates the two poles, right? Or is that, I'm thinking of nickel cadmium. Uh, most batteries have an anode, cathode, and electrolyte. So Right. Just but some battery has some kind of paper or something that separates the two, two uh, cathodes and anodes. Oh, uh, well, a lot of batteries have separation acid? simply so they don't jump across like circuits. They have separation. Like a lead-acid battery in your car has a bunch of plates, and it's kind of like a slurry for the best way to say it, but some batteries need to be layered. Gotcha. So, yeah. So that's that's as much as I can explain it, since I don't understand it well myself. Uh, Mike, why don't you try and explain to me how batteries work, which may be even more painful than me trying to explain how batteries work. I hope you uh, have a tall glass of whiskey for you. Um, but um... Yes, I do. I assume most are familiar with the experimentation as a kid is you have a piece of lemon, or not a piece of lemon, you have a lemon and either cop, you have copper or zinc. And if you put the two inside the lemon, it draws, uh, it creates electricity. So how it works. Oh, like the, the old potato. Yes. Just like the good old potato. Yeah. We use potatoes in the Midwest, Mike. Come on. <laughs> Lemons are for Southern states. <laughs> Uh, but uh, how it works is pretty much very similar to, I mean, I would not disagree with anything you said, Nick. You have an anode and a cathode and electrolyte, the electrolyte acting as a barrier, a, a, a sieve that draws ions and electrons from one metal and pass it to the other. And depending on the metal, uh, sorry, depending on the battery, you're able to put electricity, the ions, electrons back in. So all you're doing is you're pulling off different parts of the metal, different parts of the atom, the molecule, and transferring it over, which generates not only electricity, but also generates heat. And that's pretty much how a battery works, is you are pulling a atom through a liquid or a solid surface or a material to another metal, and that creates electricity. Much like if you drop a magnet through a coil of wires, that creates current. 
or a bunch of currents over a magnet. That also creates electricity. It's the same kind of methodology, but a different process to do so. But that begs the question, why are batteries important? Well, us humans, we are very good at generating electricity. We have numerous ways. We have hydro dams, solar, uh, solar panels, wind turbines, coal, natural gas, nuclear, geothermal. We are really- Hamsters spinning on wheels. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Those are number one generators, if I'm not, not mistaken. Some would say the most renewable. <laughs> but all these generations, all these generating of, te- of electricity, we have nowhere to put it, so it gets wasted. We need a way to store this energy so we don't just constantly need to constantly keep burning coal, natural gas, or solar does not go to waste. So at nighttime, we can't use solar. We have a way to store it. Uh, it's important to note that most electrical grid systems at a steady pace. And in high demand times, they simply start up another burner or they add more fuel to the fire, quite literally, to meet the generating electrical needs, which isn't the best system, especially when we have all these different ways of generating electricity, but so few ways to store it. Yeah, and so and uh, if you're curious about elect- how... I guess renewable resource, renewable energy generation. You should check out our renewable podcast. But Mike, why is this important? And this is a super interesting topic that I didn't know if you ran across this, but did you know that Elon Musk said that right now, if uh, Australia wanted to be a hundred percent renewable with his batteries and windmills, they could collect and store enough energy for all of Australia which is a continent, which is a small prison continent, but still a continent nonetheless. Oh, no, I completely agree. I, if I'm not mistaken... The, they already have one of their big banks there. Yeah. Uh, no, we have all the means to solve all of our energy problems, but we have yet to do so cheaply and easily done. And us humans, we don't like doing the hard work. We like the easy work. So we'll do a lot of hard work to find an easier way to do the work. And that's where coming up with new batteries comes in. And we'll think about your phone. So what takes, you know, phones for a while were getting smaller and smaller. Then we figured out you could watch porn on them and they were getting bigger and bigger. But for the longest time, one of the biggest things of taking up most place in your phone was your battery. And it got bigger and bigger so you could use it all day. And we want it to be as small as we can. But we also want it to store energy well. I mean, everyone... Probably at some point in most people's lives, they've bought the cheapest battery they could for their car, and it just it went out pretty quick compared to maybe later in your life you splurged on that nicer battery, and it maybe have given you an extra year of life in your in your car. Not all batteries are built the same, so we want batteries that store the most energy and can be we can charge them all the way or charge them part of the way. And they have a long lifespan and are tiny. That's the ideal that we're working towards. We can do some of those things. We can do, we can't do all of those things right now. We're getting, I mean, better all the time. That's how technology works. But each battery, type of battery, has a a different application. I mean, there's a difference between a car battery and a battery for a fishing boat, difference between like lithium ion batteries for your laptop and Sorry, I like fishing. All I can think of is is fishing boat batteries, which 
for for power in your electronics, your trolling motor, your your depth finder and stuff like that. But there's a there's a surprising amount of batteries out there. And when we think of batteries, most of us think of small. I can, you know, lift it up, put it in the car. Your double A's, heavy. your triple A's, or your triple car A's battery. car batteries. But it's kind of crazy. I don't know how to describe like a a building of batteries, like the the terminals we need to hold that solar power. Like that's that's like a a bank, a battery bank, like we've never seen a battery bank. So I want to make some declarations before we continue. For this episode, I focus on batteries that I think can be implemented within the next five years, basically, and ones that I think have real possibilities. Uh, there are definitely two sets of batteries, like Nick said. There are the small, consumable batteries in everyday life and large power grid batteries. Both are what we will talk about, but both have huge, huge importances. Um, one, not only to make your life easier with storing, but to me, more important, the large energy one, so there's less strain on our power grids. And like you mentioned, Nick, with uh, discharge rate, rechargeable rate, I also want to throw in cycles. So how many times you can do this? The best way to classify and measure a battery is its discharge rate, its rechargeability, and how many cycles it can do. So cycles being how many times you can bring it all the way down to zero and all the way back up. That's like a that's like a cycle. Discharge rate is how much electricity it can put out. And for rechargeability, how much after like a thousand cycles can it go up back up to its max? Like what's the new max after a thousand cycles? I think it's important to note, I personally am just talking about batteries. I'm not gonna be talking about capacitors. Nick might be talking about capacitors, I'm not quite sure yet. I just wanted to Probably. make Probably I don't even know. <laughs> but Nick, since you mentioned lithium and we've been mentioning lithium through the podcast lithium is not the one-all solution to me lithium is a temporary fix yes it's wonderful it's gone to done amazing things we've even done a massive power banks in australia and i believe costa rica i wasn't sure if that was just all talk or if they actually did it but lithium is not very scalable it's great for small applications not large applications there's also Quite a few drawbacks for lithium. One being cost. It's not exactly the cheapest. Refining, like I mentioned earlier, it's usually mixed in with a different type of rocks and minerals. And, well, the amount of lithium, which is now becoming more and more worrisome because, like I said, lithium in large deposits are only found in certain areas on the world, which, depending on what country you're in, depending on how political trees are going, might make them scarce or might make them completely gone. And one, which I assume everyone knows about, exploding lithium batteries, which is everyone's favorite because everyone loves a large explosion. Yeah, here in America we do. Apparently other countries don't. But the reason why... That's what your old friend the TSA is worried about, Mike. (laughs) Let's uh, let's not go down that dark avenue. I don't even have enough whiskey for that. But uh, lithium, for those who don't know, is a liquid state battery so like we mentioned with the anode cathode and the electrolyte that electrolyte is a liquid pretty much that's what it means liquid state is the connection of the piece is a liquid so some part of it is a liquid there are many people trying to develop solid state batteries with different minerals or different combinations but it's not exactly great for lithium lithium i think is gonna go the way of the dodo actually 
sooner rather than later, which is actually a good thing for the world. And like, like I said, Nick, I'm going to mention Texas actually quite a bit in this episode. At the University of Texas at Austin, they, they found a new way to pull lithium from water. They use a polymer membrane to separate lithium from ocean water. The polymer allows lithium to travel faster than sodium, thus separating it. So we have enough lithium if we use this process if we need to. But like I said, lithium might soon become a conflict mineral, which I'm not the biggest fan of, so I'm more than happy to switch to different types of batteries. Yeah, so I I didn't spend too much time looking at lithium batteries because one, I figured you would talk about it, and two, I think we kind of hit a little bit about it on the renewable one of not really how it works, but the pros and, and cons of storing energy in lithium batteries. But uh, I guess basically lithium is mined from, well, it's mined like anything else, and it's not mined in good practices and it's not good for the earth is pretty much the sum of it. The one thing I really want to point about lithium batteries compared to other batteries is lithium is not very good at being scalable. In order to make more lithium batteries, you have to add a bunch more in either series or parallel. For those who just had a panic attack, don't worry. That's We're not going back to high school physics or chemistry. It's just lithium batteries are usually small batteries that you have to add into giant packs. They're not really able to be giant batteries, so to speak. Just a bunch of little batteries added up to be a big battery. That scalability is huge to me. So this, speaking of scalability, this may be or may not be a good transition if you're done with lithium to talk about iron air batteries. Are the iron air, are you talking about aluminum air batteries? I'm talking about batteries that basically use the rust process to generate electricity we are talking about different batteries please continue oh looks like i was more prepared than i thought (laughs) don't worry you'll get a gold star at the end of this cool so the iron air battery is a relatively new battery basically how it works is and i don't quite understand 100 percent how it works but i'm explaining it to you in the way that i understand it Inside the battery, you have rust. Well, you have iron. And then by adding oxygen to that, breaking the rust down, converting the iron to rust, you, it, it, uh, holy cow. Okay. As the oxygen comes in and turns to rust, it char- it basically charges the battery off that process. And then you can speed up or slow that process down and storing that energy. It's basically just collecting all the, escaped energy from the rust process and going back and forth so what i don't quite understand and they haven't addressed and i haven't seen anywhere that addresses it is if they just change out the iron after it's completely rusted or it reverses because they say they get the energy as it goes back and forth through the rusting process but to me i'd be like it, it just seems like it'd be easier to just put a new piece of iron in there after one's rusted out but they're basically putting in oxygen it's rusting and then taking back that oxygen after so it goes from rust charges the oxygen oxygen's released then it's iron and then oxygen's added to the iron and it turns to rust again which releases oxygen supposedly they're capturing that released oxygen in the form of energy can i take an educated guess on this battery um 
supposedly wait what's your educated guess well i'm assuming it's iron trioxide not iron dioxide so there's different types of rust for those who don't know and i'm guessing the amount of energy drawn is how much energy how much oxygen affects the iron and when you add energy back in it displaces the oxygen away from the iron so it, it makes it a repeatable cycle uh yeah i i i do not know what iron it is um in would that work if they had electrolytes inside the batteries as well well i assume the electrolyte uh for those uh, just a simple way to think of electrolyte is a simple electrolyte is simply either a barrier or a way to like the highway from point a to point b to transfer so i imagine if you're drawing more energy it creates more oxygen to attack the iron to create iron trioxide or dioxide i'm not sure which one it would be in this case which would generate maybe electrical current uh, or maybe heat, and the heat turns into electrical current. And then when you need to reverse the cycle, the electricity added to the, I assume it's a liquid slurry, would break up the oxygen from the iron, thus making the iron particles separate again. I'm wondering on the surface area, though. Surface area is kind of important. Large. So this is for large battery, like energy storage solutions. So... Right now, they're saying in its smallest version, one megawatt to to store one megawatt requires about an acre of land. Oh, fuck. That's ridiculous. They think that with higher, like, a you know, as technology increases, they'll be able to store three megawatts per acre. Oh, Nick. And I have that's (laughs) that Nick, Nick, that's that's like that's like growing one tree per acre. Hey, I don't make. The batteries, I just tell you about them. This is the one everyone's all excited about. I figured this was like the thing. Oh, no. The ones most people, at least in my world, are excited about are sodium batteries. And uh... This is the one the idiots are excited about, so you're going to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's fair. All right, in my the engineering world, I've not heard of that. Everyone's excited about liquid batteries and uh, solid-state batteries and sodium ion batteries. So... All right, tell me if this is good or bad. They say it'll be $80 per kilowatt hour of storage. I don't know how that compares to... $80 per kilowatt of storage? That seems garbage. At that point, a reservoir is probably cheaper. Oh, sorry. So there... uh, That was a comparison. So that's what this firm is saying, lithium-ion storage costs, $80 per kilowatt hour. They're saying that supposedly... With their system, it'll be six dollars per kilowatt hour. That's a huge difference. And again, or lithium is not lots of scalable, yeah. not a scalable battery, in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, one, I well, iron's pretty abundant, so I'm not too worried about that. Well, that's that's one of the things that uh, they're they're working with um, one of the big iron producers, so they might have a pretty cheap supply. My only curiosity now is what is that electrolyte? If that's an easy solution, uh, but that acreage coverage for per megawatts is not exactly fantastic. I ooh, I there are some different ones which I want to talk about later in the podcast. Which and I I'll be honest this this one I mean it's got a possibility. I'm all ears, but I can't wait to hear until you hear about mine. But if we can back travel a little bit, 
I like to talk about smaller batteries before we get to large-scale batteries. Continue. So, like I mentioned a little bit, uh, sodium-ion batteries. So at Washington State University and with the Pacific Northwest National Lab, so your backyard, Nick, they have developed a sodium... I I didn't go there, but I have been drunk there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that doesn't sum you up. I don't know what does. But they have developed a sodium-ion battery that has a similar performance to lithium and keeps about 80% of its charge after 100 cycles. And the reason why it's kind of important, it's made out of sodium. For those who don't know what sodium is, it's salt. N-A. Well, salt's technically N-A-C-L, sodium chloride. But So it's just half a salt. Yeah, it's salt is that. It, sodium's everywhere. I am never worried about running out of sodium, especially for being American. Hell, I can go to McDonald's and probably get enough sodium <laughs> to start a whole company. And remember from the, was it, what were we talking about? Were New cities. Herbicides? You can eat seven pounds oh, or seven ounces? Oh, yeah. You can, salt? Eat, you can eat seven pounds of salt, but it takes 16 pounds of glyphosate to kill you. Yeah, that's a, uh, but it, going back to batteries, sorry, that, that fact still fascinates me. But uh, similar, a group of researchers from MIT, the University of South Denmark, and the University of Copenhagen, so our Norwegian friends, shout out to you guys found a new way to make sodium even more efficient. By adding manganese, they were able to make the batteries longer, uh, last longer, and have a higher charge. So that means the batteries, the same size, is able to power something bigger and last longer. So your phone won't die halfway through the day, and you're able to keep it going. You don't have to charge it again. That's the dream. And sticking with abundant materials... At the University of California, San Diego. And you could single-handedly put I put Apple out of business. Don't tease me like that, Nick. Don't tease me like that. But at the University of California, San Diego, your backyard, with researchers of LG Energy Solution, they have created a silicone all-solid solid-state battery. This battery, like Nick said, there are layers in lithium batteries, can replace the graphite that's in them, or traditional batteries, I should say, and can be solid. So that way there's no more liquid, no more slurry electrolyte, which means, one, it doesn't degrade as fast because silicon in a liquid electrolyte decays faster. But two, one, I find a little bit more at ease. You have a less chance of your battery blowing up, which if you're Samsung or Tesla is kind of important. I mean, any battery that can blow up to then catch things on fire, whether it's in a plane or it's charging while you sleep, is what some would consider less than ideal, if, if I had to put a word to it. Is it bad? That, uh, this is a little off topic. Is it bad I'm thinking about that either Chinese or American factory that was uh, producing or storing lithium batteries and it just went all up in flames? Where? Well, I mean, I know where it was, but I, I don't really know if I remember that. Oh, it made the factory that produced fireworks look like a small little uh, M80. Sorry, going back to topic, but the the reason why uh, what I mentioned earlier when you mentioned the iron battery, Nick, is the aluminum battery. So this is an experimental battery. It's not quite finished, but I think it has potential. Um, they've been trying to develop it since the 1950s, and currently the one I think at the most league is a company from Israel, which is called Finagery. Finner Energy? Not really great at pronunciation, but... How it works... That's the theme of this podcast, honestly. (laughs) 
it's pretty much man i read this and now i'm realizing i never heard it out loud (laughs) oh let's be honest nick you could read it out loud i still couldn't say it right you're not wrong but how this aluminium air battery works is you have a aluminium plate being the electrode oxygen being the other similar to your oxygen and rust and a uh, slurry acting as electrolyte the good thing about this is it does work we can produce electricity with this and another good thing is aluminum and oxygen are pretty abundant i mean aluminum foil is pretty cheap oxygen you can kind of develop through lots of different processes and capture but the negative downside is we have yet to figure out a way to recharge this battery it is mathematically possible but we have yet to find a practical way which is a little disappointing well i mean i i don't know i feel like a lot of this a lot of the battery stuff it's like there's a lot of conjecture out there and we're a lot of it we're right on the edge and it's like uh, it reminds me of one of the dumbest things i've ever heard uh cnn say is the problem with america right now is we just don't know where the next great innovation is going to come from no one's ever known where the next great innovation is going to come from that's why it's a great innovation you fucking idiots like god we're right there like i don't know it's with batteries everyone's working towards a better battery and like we talked about already everyone's gone a lot of different ways but i to me this might just this is probably because i'm uneducated in this field it doesn't seem like there's like a clear winner. I disagree with that statement. Well, Mike, present to me your clear winner. Okay. The clear winner to me, which is already being implemented in, I believe it's Arizona or maybe Utah, is okay. a... That's like the worst examples you can bring up. So you're already losing me, but keep going. Okay. A MIT professor by the name of Donald Shoudhury and his students started a company called Ambry. This battery excites me because it's a liquid battery that is... Was that a pun? Excites me. Ah, it wasn't, but it is now. I am training you well, but Ambry... Is it training or is it post-traumatic stress disorder? (laughs) What's the difference? (laughs) Ambry has developed a liquid battery that is completely scalable. So, um... This is a little simplified version of how it works. You have high-temperature tank, one layer being the anode, being liquid calcium. Calcium is kind of everywhere. You have a salt or a calcium chloride electrolyte, which in this place is just a barrier. So almost like a sandwich, you have your calcium, your salt or calcium chloride being in between. And at the bottom, you have antium. Antimony? Antimonium? It's a it's an element which I cannot pronounce, which is the story of my life. <laughs> it has to be heated to six hundred fifty to seven hundred degrees Celsius, which is hot. And you might be like, "Well, that's a lot of energy to draw that." This is energy storage. We're not worried about creating energy. We have abundance of creating energy. It's about storing energy. And the great thing about these, the at least in my opinion, is it's completely scalable. You simply want a bigger battery. Just pour in more calcium, pour in more anamine, pour in more electrolyte salt, and bada bing, bada boom, and which is super fantastic. And the best thing is the process; it works both ways extremely well. So as much as it does recharge, it 
also gives off. I think it's like an 87% efficiency, which is ridiculous. And which is another cool thing is the heat generated off this can be also used to produce electricity. You can generate heat. You can use heat to generate electricity. So while you're heating this, you're producing electricity, which can help store this, which stores right in the battery. And since it has such high operating temperatures, your biggest worry is not like lithium, where if the battery gets too hot, it explodes. If it cools down, it's stored. The I mean, if something cools down, you don't have to worry about it. The only thing you have to do is reheat it back up and go back at it again. It's a lot safer, in my opinion, than large lithium cell batteries. And Ambrium is already implemented, I believe, in a server in Arizona or uh, Utah, which is super fantastic. But a big, big, big breakthrough that just came through from, once again, the University of Texas at Austin is they developed a liquid battery that can operate at 20 degrees Celsius. That's like 65 degrees, 75 degrees Fahrenheit. And since most batteries, like I said, for these for Ambry, it has to operate at 650 to 700 degrees Celsius, bringing that temperature down means it can go far more places, use less energy to charge the battery, make it far more efficient. The main... Like, just to give like a reference here, we were shining... Not sh- I don't know, that's not the right word, but looking through a thermal camera at a burning building and it'll reference like seven, 800 degrees in areas that aren't super hot. It'll be much hotter in the main part of the fire, but that's literally like burning building hot. Like that's 600 degrees Fahrenheit is hot. Oh, it's hot, but I mean, we use thermite to make, to help weld railroad track and thermite burns at what, 3000, 5000 degrees Fahrenheit. We use things hotter than the sun on earth constantly it's just not in our face yeah i don't know i i don't <laughs> okay <laughs> in, in my everyday life so 600 degrees to me is hot i live on the coast it doesn't get above like 90 here sorry we can't all live in texas where it's regularly 600 degrees it, it really feels like that sometimes <laughs> but at the university at austin they've made a liquid battery that can operate at 20 degrees celsius so 65 75 so your temperature nick but there we go all they had to do <laughs> was add so, it was make a alloy of sodium potassium and but they also used gallium as the cathode sodium potassium as the anode which i'm hoping we find a different use for potassium and gallium because one i don't think gallium is that abundant of a a, a atom i believe it's an atom which i could be mistaken uh and potassium is becoming more and more rare. But the ability to lower liquid battery temperatures to make them that low gives me high hopes. And again, Ambrium, again, I, I might be praising them a little too much, but already being implemented. They've already been approached to NASA about pro, uh, being batteries on Venus and Mars and the moon. It's a real possibility because it's a liquid battery on this size and this scale could be implemented just about anywhere and your major concern if it's well insulated would be it cooling down too much that sounds like a wonderful problem rather than having a lithium-ion battery blow up so that's essentially the opposite yes well yes well i mean heat wise more heat it makes it, it safer <laughs> which is a weird statement to say so this is a, is this a so is this a liquid battery or a solid state battery? This is a liquid battery. 
So okay. they pretty much turned the insides into molten. Gotcha. And the cat, the not the catalyst, the electrolyte, which is the calcium chloride or the salt sometimes used, is a membrane which allows electrons to pass back and forth. And again, completely scalable. You need more, just make a bigger tank. And again, 86, 87% efficiency. That's ridiculous in the energy world. Uh, but since you mentioned opposites, I can't help but mention earth, wind, water, and fire. And we are using all four of those elements to make large-scale energy storage. And Nick, I don't know if you have anything else before I switch into fully in-depth into large energy storage. Uh, no, all I was going to say is calm down, Mr. Airbender. Nick, I'm excited. I like magnetism, electricity. I like power. And not like the political power. I just like not forcing. like <laughs> the boring you get to rule Rome power. Like, hey, check out my watch. I haven't charged in two days. Power that power. <laughs> yeah, the like the nine volt battery power. <laughs> cool. All right, glad we got that straight. Well, sticking with the fire theme and Nick picking on me, I find this really exciting because salt. Coming back to salt again, sodium is I. It's going to be huge. Like indoor plumbing. Going back, it's going to be huge. Molten salt. So we produce a lot of power through solar panels that we can't use at the nighttime. Well, we need a way to store that. Well, these solar panels tend to be in high visible sun areas or hot areas with lots of sun. Well, we can heat up the salt. Well, if we heat up the salt, it's going to take a while to cool down. Well, when the power increases around, you know... 4 to 7 p.m. and we need more electricity rather than turn on another furnace in the coal factory why don't we use that salt we just heated up with the excess electricity from solar panels to boil some steam to turn a turbine the same process again but this time using heat residue from salt using i mean solar panels and mirrors are able to get salt into a liquid slurry again reaching really high temperatures and when we need it we can or when the sun starts going down, start boiling some steam with it to produce electricity to meet that demand that is needed by the ever-growing population of this planet. If I had to guess, is because you're going to be competing against the McDonald's Corporation so they can salt all their fries. Well, it's funny you say that. The same salt, road salt, can be used for liquid-state batteries and can be used for these molten salt storage facilities. The same, the same table salt, but that's how cheap it can be. Way cheaper than lithium. Yeah. I mean, everyone, that's not true. Everyone who lives in the Midwest has seen the giant oh, salt storage facilities. I don't even know what you call those things. Ooh, that's Just a good stacked. question. Yeah. And if they can afford to pay for it in Illinois where they can't afford anything by they, I mean, the government of Illinois, it's pretty cheap. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. But maybe switching it off a little bit to make it a little more in your world, Nick. Water. Water is another energy storage system which is scalable, which humanity has been using forever, and might get a new twist on it. But wasn't well, it already? Isn't like ninety percent of the world's stored power already in hydropower? Bingo. Of, uh, like, what do they call that? The dams, water storage, the reservoirs. For it. Yes. Yes, bingo, bingo, reservoirs. And 
it might be coming more popular in different regions, maybe in smaller water tanks and water facilities, but reservoirs for God, I don't know how long have been in implemented in society. And how it works is when you have excess electricity, you pump a bunch of water into a large area. And when you need to generate electricity, you let it flow back down to turn a turbine and produce more electricity. It's uh, It all comes down to just spinning a turbine, Nick, whether it be steam by heating something up or dropping something. And water is definitely going to be dropping something. I mean, I, I think water, like we said already, 90 i want to say it was 91 percent of the world's stored energy right now is in water because like you said you can build a collection a reservoir a dam and then you can release as much or as little as you need and we talked about why it might not be a good thing to have dams on larger rivers even though it, it helps with trade and stuff like that but putting them up at the the head wall of the big the the headwater is the beginning of a stream where there's it's not as sensitive a habitat for wildlife. I mean, that to me seems like the easiest right now way we can store a bunch of electricity. Easiest? I'm not so sure. Tried and true? Most definitely. Easiest to me might be a new process switching to another element. Gerbils <laughs> on wheels. That might be going on in your mind, Nick, but I need you to focus on the future. <laughs> that was a good one. That was a good one, not going to lie. <laughs> I do try. I do try. But switching to another element, wind. No, not the wind turbines. I'm talking more about compressed air. Specifically, CASE. C-A-E-S. Compressed air energy storage. It's battery, but instead of chemicals and materials and atoms, it's using air. So the air can be anything, but mainly in this point, it's just, you know, normal air. So 70% nitrogen and 30% oxygen and then some other stuff mixed in too. But, you know, you get what I'm saying. So, yeah, just your normal atmospheric mixture, not straight O2. Correct. And much like an air compressor that many might have in a garage or have ever seen, it's a pressurized tank. But instead of a tank, they're using the earth. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not off my rocker. Not quite yet. There are tons of mines, uh, empty oil caverns that are just that. They're empty. A huge, vast of area with nothing in them. And using a case, a compressed air energy storage, when you have excess energy from all these different energy sources, what you can do is you can press air and shove it into these mines. And when you need that air back, you simply kind of release the valve when it helps spin the turbine to help generate electricity. The cool part is a new company, which I am so sorry, I am blanking, figure out how to do this with rock cabins. Now, you might be saying, why is that important? Well, for salt, sorry, for salt and oil caverns, they're kind of sealed off. They're very well at storing. I mean, that liquid petroleum didn't go anywhere. So it's kind of always sealed off. But if you dig a hole, it might not be the most sealed and the air might escape, be less efficient. Well, this company figured out how to do it by doing that, making rock rock caverns, by doing with rock caverns. And not only did they figure out how to do it just anywhere, so now it's not only where oil and salt mines and all and mineral mines are, but this can be dug in anyone's backyard practically. 
Granted, I think this is very important. I think different batteries should be implemented in different places. I think solid liquid state batteries should be in hot zones like Texas, Arizona, stuff like that, simply because of heat. And I think compressed air energy storage should be in the north where the ground's softer. Because I don't know if you've ever tried to dig in the south, Nick, but boy, that red clay is sometimes really tough. And depending on where you are, very rocky terrain. But anyhow, this company who figured out- I'm not too far from bedrock, so does that make me a good or bad candidate? Ooh, well- that's the great thing about large energy storage. It doesn't have to be right in your backyard. It can be through electrical lines farther away. So it can be in an ideal area just near you. Classic Oregon. We're just going to put more shit in eastern Oregon. <laughs> um, Sorry, before, that, uh, before, before, yep. before I forget, this company that also figured out how to do it in normal dirt, rock caverns, also figured out how to use a heat exchanger to capture that extra heat to warm the air when it's coming out to spin the turbine. So the reason why that's important is we've done air batteries before in testing and facilities, but we usually burn natural gas to heat up the air to make it easier to flow because, you know, colder temperatures make molecules move less, hot temperatures make molecules move more. We kind of have to heat the air in order to do this process. But using a heat exchanger, we're able to heat the air beforehand and no longer needing to burn fossil fuel to make this process. So it's not only... It's pretty much green, renewable, large mass storage, which is very impressive to me. Sorry, Nick. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Just wanted to get that thought out. No, no worries. Um, I did also come across the compressed air storage, which I think is, like I said, we that's a technology we've been using for various things. And so we, you know, we know how to do it. And now that we know where to put it and use it, um, my kind of concern about and you're saying let's use it up north. Well, temperature will cause that to to change. No, it won't. It's uh, it's too far down on the ground. Where oh, as soon as you get, I believe, below six feet, the Earth's pretty consistent for gotcha. for a long distance. I mean, obviously, the deeper you go, the warmer the temperature gets, the closer to the core you get, and the pressure. But it's Earth is pretty consistent for a large layer underneath our feet. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I'd just be worried about like leaks, but I do enjoy. I I did come across that, um, and that's we kind of covered something similar to this in, with the nuclear episode about how stable it is when you get far down, and there's all those empty places that we could use. We pump the oil out, maybe we put something back in there. So this seems like a pretty reasonable one to me, because it's not, it's technology we have just used in a different way. Oh, agreed. And to answer your leak, Nick, would you rather have liquid calcium leak or would you rather have air leak? Well, I'm not worried as much about the environmental concerns of like, <laughs> oh shit, we spent all this energy compressing this air. Where did it go? We're at, we're at like, there's no pressure here. Touche, touche. But I guess if you gain that energy from quote unquote renewable sources, you didn't really lose much? I don't know how that works. Well, if I'm not mistaken, there are, I think these are just tests. I don't think they've been implemented yet. There are, for lack of better terms, air, different types of gas propelled into these caverns to help seal it off better. I could be mistaken about that, but I was pretty sure I came across a couple articles with that. Oh, I mean, I'm sure they have a system to, to seal it off. I, I don't know. I, that That's a pretty cool system to me. I, I came across storing compressed air but i guess i never really looked into what they were storing it in i just assumed they were storing in like 
I don't know. Giant I was just imagining, like, yeah, I was thinking air compressors or you know, scuba tanks or SCBA tanks, like something like just your normal composite, like metal composite tanks, but big. I, I guess I never thought about, well, we got these big tanks underground. Let's just put a cap on it and call it a day. Yeah. And, well, speaking of digging holes, that kind of goes into our last element of the four elements. Yes, I am the one. I am Neo. Uh, the Avatar. Earth. So this is very, to me, a hybrid of both wind and water. The simplified version is you dig a shaft straight down, tied to a winch motor, and yeah, that's pretty much it. And a heavy weight. When you drop the weight, it creates electricity. When you have excess electricity, you raise the weight. So this long cavern, when you have excess electricity, lifts up the cavern, lifts up this weight up the cavern, going up and up and up and up and up. And then it gets out of that time where you need more power, say 7 p.m., and it starts lowering the weight. This weight now is slowly spinning a generator, which is generating electricity, thus making electricity. It's a earth mechanical battery, which is absolutely fascinating to me that this battery can also be implemented just about anywhere. If you can dig a hole and you have enough little room to support the hole, bada bing, bada boom. And it's being implemented in different areas. I'm not mistaken. Once again, I think it's in the Norwegian region. God, they just do it right there, don't they? It, well, they, they, they seem to be being uh, batting at 100%. I'll definitely say that. But the cool thing about this is it's a pretty simple process. And from what I saw, I think it's 20 years until any parts need to be replaced. And I imagine the parts need to be replaced is either the cable. I don't imagine that weight's going to change very much. The motor might become more efficient to raise the heavy weight, but it's simply it's much like water, like a water t- reservoir. You put a heavy weight up, and when you need it, you slowly let it out, and it generates electricity. But instead of raising it up, you're raising it to surface level, and when you need to, you drop it below the earth. That's that's such a simple concept. I can understand it instantly. Holy shit! It, it, it's a miracle. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. So that's that is that's like one of those things is like wow, that's really simple. How did no one think of that? I mean, I, the, you're limited by space of going up and down. But to me, it's like, man, what about like what about uh, like wind turbines? Why can't they just put these on the back and they go up and then they can go underground? Because you have a huge, uh, I don't know, tower already built and they only work for half the day. So you could combine those two, and then they could work the whole day. Don't know how that would work, but just a thought from a thought. Well, think about how much area we already use for producing electricity. Let's, a lot of that spot's used for when we need excess electricity. Like I mentioned, the power plants currently are already operating at a linear base. When they need more electricity, they simply turn on another electricity source or get it from somewhere else to produce. So it's as demand electricity source. So it's not planning ahead at all so well, look so go back to the the turbines like so each turbine needs 80 acres between another turbine so it doesn't block the wind from another turbine you could probably easily put some kind of storage device in there now granted most turbines are in some kind of farmer's field but i mean you know you're it's right there and it's open space 
Well, what I was trying to say is we could remove some of those power facilities and simply have them as power storage facilities because we don't need to generate power constantly. We have it stored. Or let's say a coal facility, we can use the weight of the coal as the weight we lift up and down. So as you lift the coal up, when you start needing more energy, it's going to lower itself automatically or like dip or something? No. So most coal facilities are required to have eight months supply of coal. So they have excess of coal on hand. So mm-hmm. when they have excess electricity, so say like two in the morning when people aren't really using electricity, you can raise that heavy weight up, a bucket full of coal, all the way to ground level. And when 7 p.m. rolls around and you need more electricity, you slowly let that coal go down, pulling a rope, which pulls a motor around in a circle, which generates electricity. So it helps the facility storage system helps generate electricity. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a very simple mechanical process. And speaking of simple mechanical process, me as a mechanical engineer is very happy to see this coming back. The flywheel. Nick, I don't know if you came across this in your research. No, uh, I am familiar with what a flywheel is, but were they gone that long? Did I not notice them being gone? Uh, For large energy storage, yes. Flywheels. Enlighten me. Flywheels is a very simple process. When you have excess energy, you spin a heavy mass, which it gains inertia. And that inertia, you can then use. So imagine, I imagine everyone's seen this. When you push a car tire down a hill, and it rolls and rolls and rolls and bounces, it's got a lot of inertia. But instead of going down a hill, imagine it's on a pole. It's on a line. So you're... So you have a, a rod and a, cylind- a cylinder on the rod. And you spin that rod, you spin that cylinder really fast, creates a lot of momentum, a lot of energy, almost like a string, almost like a spring. So when you need more electricity, you simply spin it back, or you simply keep that, in- that momentum inertia spinning to generate electricity using a flywheel. A very, well, I don't know when a flywheel was invented, but I imagine in the 20th century or late 19th century, as a power source, which is quite effective. It's at about 80%, sorry, it's about 86% efficiency, which is, again, very good. I mean, a Rykeen cycle, which is pretty much a coal cycle, is only at, at ideal Rykeen cycles at like 80%, but usually they're at like 60%. So it, I mean, 86% is amazing. So this spinning mass, the flywheel, is simply using energy to create moment, momentum, and when that when you run need electricity, use that momentum to generate electricity. I give to you, you give to me. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. But again, like everything, there are some problems with it. So large energy flywheels have a problem with the bearings. The, a major loss of energy, I think 5%, is from their bearings. Usually they use electromagnetic bearings, so pretty much it's a large floating weight floating on magnets to help reduce the friction. It's also push, pushed in a vacuum, which also reduces friction because air creates friction. So all this stuff takes electricity, so it draws it away, which brings it down to about 80% efficiency, which is still pretty good. But the same flywheel that's in your car, just really large. So I guess it's not earth, wind, water, and fire. It's earth wind water fire and metal (laughs) gravity is a constant (laughs) 
and gravity. Oh, damn it. But I was, was not uh, in the, the good physics that, class. That, to me, was really kind of cool because, well, it's above ground. Very simple process that we've known about for a while. We can kind of put that wherever. Now, I'm not saying it's going to power, power cities. Powering a city versus a town are very different. But I can very easily say this powering a town. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I just, this on a scale, would you be using one I large flywheel or a bunch of little eight. flywheels? I imagine to store all this electricity. It also depends on how much excess energy you have. I, I actually, I'll, I'm going to change my answer. I think it's going to be very dependent on how much electricity extra you have. If you're barely generating electricity to keep up with your demand, I imagine only one flywheel. If you have a lot of alternative energy sources, so in the middle of the day, say noon, you have a bunch of electricity drawn, like say, um, I don't know, uh, Kansas, when it's tornado season, there's a lot of wind. You generate a lot of electricity, you might have multiple flywheels. Gotcha. That makes sense. I was just curious of, I was playing it back and forth in my head of like, if you have one, that that seems like a lot of wear on the bearings. But if you're able to make them smaller, not only could you spread your wear out, but you could, you know, take one out of service and put some more in service as, as things progress. But you don't want to have so many that you're constantly working on all of them. So that seems like like a few seems like a pretty reasonable answer. Well, these don't these are frictionless bearings. Again, they're magnetic bearings, so they're floating on magnets. Okay, I thought okay, I I thought you said you think that they're magnetic bearings, but you weren't sure. But no, we use magnetic bearings to make them more frictionless. We tend to use electromagnets because they're more consistent than permanent magnets. So that's where the uh, loss of efficiency comes in because we can use electricity to generate the current in the coils of copper wire to okay. create a magnetic field. It's all coming together now. Well, one that's probably going to hurt I your brain. trees. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do electricity. Well, one that's going to hurt your brain because it hurts my brain and it's kind of way out of left field is uh, a massless battery. And that was massless as in M-A-S-S. So a weightless battery, which kind of already exists and is getting better and better every single day. So Chalmers University of Technology has made a carbon fiber battery, a quote-unquote massless battery, about 20% of the energy in lithium, but far less weight. So they f imagine a thick piece of construction paper now maybe triple that that thickness is a battery at 20 percent of lithium battery uh per size maybe i don't know maybe the size of binder open so to speak, uh, for size uh but the reason why this is interesting is because of the carbon fiber process it makes it stiff it makes it a hard material but still allows it to produce electricity so this battery can be implemented as a construction material, so it's integrated into the structure and still a battery. A big application, which they're trying to process this, is, is for car frames, for car bodies. So a big problem with electric vehicles is their weight, power-to-weight ratio. Lithium-ion batteries get heavy fast. Like I said, they're not very scalable. But with this massless battery, and massless being it still has mass, but it's just so light that it's quote-unquote massless and still having a rigid 
but still flexible material, you can morph it into the shape of a car. So the car itself would be the battery. It wouldn't have batteries in it. And this would reduce the weight in most electric vehicles by 20 to 25%. And I want to get your opinion about this, Nick. Imagine a wall, every wall in your house being a battery rather than gypsum. Or your floor being your battery instead of laminate or hardwood. As a firefighter, this sounds like a nightmare. This is also far safer than lithium. I, I mean, just... it's, it's probably a safer battery, but as like a getting through a wall slash burning, it seems like a nightmare. I don't know. Just the first first thoughts. Then what about floor? Because very funny, this is when it's broken, it's not combustible. So when it breaks, it simply breaks the circuit. It doesn't go boom like lithium, but it still keeps its rigid form. So imagine your floor that you walk on being your energy storage facility. So each house could be independent for electricity. This or sound, your this car. sounds like I might have to pay less for heating. True. Very true. And also, your car would be made out of a battery. It wouldn't need batteries. This seems like future stuff, Mike. Uh, Yeah. I mean, Nick, we live in the future. We have devices that connect us to anyone in the world. We are talking hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. We have different drinks from around the world. We have been to space. We can actually, if we get enough money, pay to go to space. Nick, this is the future, so why not have more future things? I mean, it it seems pretty sweet, but it just, like, seems too good to be true. Like, there's... It's like having your lunch and eating it, too. That just doesn't seem like something that we could do. Now, I, I understand the internet, like, all this cell phone that does all the shit sits in the size of your hand seems, like, too good to be true. So I'm just, just an old... What do you call that? Luddite. Farmer. <laughs> <laughs> luddite sitting here like that's that'll never work i don't know it just seems seems too good to be true i didn't i didn't really look look into it so i have don't have any I mean, intelligent comments in its, on it it's still in its testing it's still in the laboratory but i imagine within 15 years it will be almost ready to go i mean look at the growth from lithium to i mean lithium ion batteries are everywhere and carbon fiber can be made well carbon's kind of abundant kind of everywhere Granted, we're still getting to the process of trying to make carbon fiber on a large scale, so that's a big hiccup. But all these different energy sources for with small scale and large scale, from molten batteries to mass gravity batteries to wind batteries to solid state batteries to sodium ion batteries, I see them all being available in the next 15 years. Now, the massless batteries may be longer, but I can see real world testing in the next 15 years. I think the end of lithium-ion batteries is upon us, which might be a good thing. Might be make us less dependent on other countries. Might make it cheaper and more available to other people. Might make it easier for people to have electricity. Having large-scale storage makes the planet more green, more renewable. I see petroleum, coal, natural gas disappearing. I think batteries are going to lead the way for that to happen. Yeah, and I, I think the I think it's been said enough, but battery storage is the key to everything that we're doing, or t- energy storage. 
I mean, from cars, cell phones to to LART to storing for cities. If we're able to store electricity easily and cheaply, it opens up all sorts of, not that we don't have enough already, but all sorts of energy, different energy production sources. I don't know how, would, how to word that, but I, the batter, the energy storage right now is like the the lock to unlock all the stuff we want to do. And as soon as we find a key, which is a cheap, affordable energy storage, we're going to have the technology boom is going to seem pretty crazy. Can't agree with you more. Weird thing is, it's probably going to happen in our lifetime, too. What a time to be alive. Well, I wouldn't put it in those words with other things happening in the world, but yes. When you just uh, look at the, the history of batteries and where we are at and the history of batteries, what a time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all I have for small and large-scale batteries because, again, I want there are different many different types of batteries. I mainly focus on batteries that I can see being implemented that are cheaply and be able to mass produce there's a lot of gold titanium weird alloy batteries which i don't think are scalable even though they're more efficient simply because they're rare minerals well the gold ones if we get some space mining and bring a lot of gold back but before i get too far away from it, nick i want to ask your opinion which one for the batteries i displayed because obviously it looks like we did very different research did you like i mean in a perfect world the massless battery would be ideal but was that your favorite because i'm not gonna lie liquid batteries just melting stuff and gravity batteries just simply lifting a heavy weight high and then dropping it is uh those are those are my favorite well i think uh i mean i really i looked a little bit into like the water storage and stuff and i thought that was like the most real world application uh the weights one i thought was real world especially considering you know it doesn't have to be we're going to lift a huge weight super tall but say you put a big weight in the back of a a wind turbine you're already high and then you can dig lower that might be you know in each wind turbine has one that might be an effective way to store power but i mean I, those mechanical batteries if i guess you're quote unquote mechanical batteries to me seem like the ones that make the most sense. I would say they seem the most easiest to obtain. I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, but also, if you're taking my advice on where the future of batteries is going, I researched this for several days and could not quite understand all the different kinds of batteries and where they're going and who is making who and what comes from where. And this is good for that. And this is good for that. And it's... It's a pretty in-depth topic. My professor, one of my professors had a joke. Uh, if you think you're a gambling man, go talk to a material scientist. Uh, for those who don't know, material scientist is simply using a lot of energy and efficiency and math in your brain to come up with a new type of material to change the world. Very hard to do. You probably have better odds at winning the lotto or uh, making a lot of money at the casinos. But Nick, since you mentioned you researched different things and stuff like that i am curious because i i feel i feel bad like i've been talking over you oh no you're good i i was just struggling to come up with so like i want to understand like i looked up like the lithium ion batteries obviously and i was like okay so how how do we make those where does that come from and where are they produced and then comparing them to other energy storage and stuff and it's just it's kind of like the renewables one where the science is 
I won't say junk, but very one-sided. And it's just kind of hard to tell, like, oh, this this is this is more available. I was trying to get a trying to find a sense of what would be easier to do, like in a commercial setting of where is the the industry of batteries and cars and cell phones, where is that going? And uh, it uh, depends who you ask, honestly, is what I found. Yeah, it's a, I mean, as old as batteries are, we haven't really taken them seriously until the mid-20th century. So less than 100 years, so still relatively new technology. Uh, from what I understand, most lithium batteries come from Asia or Central America, but mainly Asia. Because, again, lithium is only found in certain areas. And how lithium-ion battery works is kind of how the rest of the batteries work. It's just a little bit more complicated. You have an anode electrode and an electrolyte. And the electrolyte also acts as a separator, so they don't mix. And that's how they process the ions and electrons through. Uh, but a big thing with lithium is, one, it's very efficient at transferring the it's very good at conducting back and forth but the problem is it takes a lot of refining to get good lithium yeah and that's why i think like uh like i was looking at the the iron error battery even though it's it's large those are two readily available sources you know it's not uh it's not rare none neither of those are rare and so that to me is like man that seems like something that you know the cost of lithium is well, it's going, people say it's going to go down and going to go up, but to me, it seems like it's only going to go up as it gets used more and more and more. There's more demand for it. It would seem to go up, but as the demand increases, people are finding better way to better ways to refine more of it and create more of it. So it's kind of like steady-ish. Well, especially if we we're able to draw lithium out of the ocean now, but I am super excited about reading your source on the iron battery because if we can use a natural process like oxidation or rust to create electricity, that's a huge breakthrough. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know how much I buy it because at the same time, I'd love to use not only remove all the rust from the frame of my vehicle, but also generate electricity from <laughs> removing that <laughs> rust, but... Here we are. I still have a bunch of rust on my frame, and uh, and nothing it's to show for it. It's that good old it. road salt, Nick. <laughs> we don't got road salt. We got sea salt. Ooh, well, it looks like that sodium's coming back to uh, Nick. You're just full of battery materials. You got salt up there. You got rust up there. I don't know how you're not generating tons of electricity. Yeah, that's uh, and that's why I'm thinking some big fucking blocks on a. Some kind of chain is, is going to be better than all this stuff that surrounds me right now. <laughs> well, I'll grab my shovel and start helping you dig, Nick. I hope. Well, that's. I think that's about all I had for batteries, Mike. Yes, I just want to say we've probably missed some batteries. Want me per being on purpose, but any batteries that you think could be immediately implemented or large scale, I'm more interested in large scale. Uh, please let us know. And Nick, where could they let us know with these different types of batteries? Because boy, there are a lot of batteries. You can find us on Instagram at Backyard Philosophy Podcast. And we're going to be on Reddit soon. We don't quite have the name worked out yet, but we'll be there. 
And can they find us on Twitter? Uh, no, you cannot find us on Twitter. Because there's no charge there. The only thing I hate worse than puns is Twitter, so... You know how hard it was not to make electrical and charge jokes throughout this entire podcast? Oh, uh, that's true. You know how... It's, it's you very know, easy. I... I restrained myself from all the current and amp jokes. It's, I was so proud of myself. You let me have that one. All right. I'll give that to you. Well, Mike, before we uh, get out of here, what are you reading? Well, I was trying to recharge myself with a good book, but it's only making me more frantic. I am reading How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept, The Stealth War by Robert Spalding. And... Boy, I'm happy, and to all the government agencies, I don't have any. I'm happy I have guns. What about you, Nick? What are you reading? I am reading The Savage Wars of Peace, Small Wars, and the Rise of American Power by Max Boot, which is a super good book. Basically, the premise is, why do we refer to conventional warfare as large army versus large army when most of the wars America fights is fighting guerrillas or fighting one or two, you know, groups and, and then leaving. And he starts at the beginning of at the fighting the Barber off the Barbary coast, um, the shores of Tripoli from the Marine Corps him up to modern times. So really good. Just started it uh, today. And so far cannot say enough good things about it. I'm super excited. It's been on my reading list for a while. I'm finally getting around to it. Well, it sounds like a good book to read. And as always, thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We rarely finish a podcast without missing a point we wanted to bring up, so let us know what we forgot. And if you have a topic you want us to talk about, let us know at Backyard Philosophy on Instagram and Backyard Philosophy Podcast on Facebook.